Hello there, welcome back. Um, you have been listening to Emily Baldoni talking about talking you through the first four albums by Love. Um, and listening, if you're on Spotify, to a selection of tunes from those. Still with Nick and myself are Emily. Heya. Hello. Uh, Gavin. Howdy doody. And Paul. I didn't know I had to have a, a quirky hello. Hello. <laughs> it's okay. It's not QI. <laughs> <laughs> um, and hopefully, I mean, Nick's having some technical issues. If he disappears for a bit, it's not that he doesn't have anything to say. He's got a lot to say, but internet um okay we're gonna get cracking um what 1966 i think with love's eponymous debut emily what was how did love come about um who is arthur lee tell me things (laughs) well uh let me tell you about arthur lee um uh so he's born in memphis um but he moved at a pretty early age uh to la and love came out of actually he and um Johnny Eccles, who was the guitar player in this kind of initial lineup of love, um, had gone to high school together. They started playing in bands together um, under a number of different names. They, they tried out, I think the American Four was one name. Uh, the Grassroots were another, but then that turned out to be taken by another band. So they finally settled on love um, for the name of the band. And they started uh, gigging quite a bit around LA, especially on the Sunset Strip. They were... Um, quite the they were quite the phenomenon at the time um i mean like king of the sunset set strip is is a term that you hear applied to arthur lee a lot at this point so before this album this first one was actually recorded these were all songs that they had been playing very regularly and they were they were really a tight live group at that time it was all like you know none of this was stuff that like came up for the first time in the studio or anything like that so i think that's that is important to consider, especially in relation to some of the the albums that come after this as well. That have sort of a different relationship to live performance. Um, that that seems to be quite a, a, a standard thing with a lot of bands. They their first album is the stuff they've been playing for four or five years, and it seems to just explode out um, when they have to go and re-record other stuff. Seems to become the channel. Um, how old were they when they were uh, on the Sunset Strip? So they're pretty young at this point. I mean, um, I mean, by the time this album is actually released, I think Arthur Lee was 21. But I mean, at the point where they they actually start playing around, they're all um, like they're barely out of high school. Basically, um, they're probably too young to drink at the time. Although I don't actually know what the, <laughs> the liquor laws were in in LA in the mid 60s. Um, but they're yeah, they're super young right now. Okay. Okay, and okay, so well, musically, before we get into sort of any socio political stuff, um, I mean, well, it opens with what My Little Red Book, mm-hmm. which was Manfred Mann. That's right. Cover. Um, well, it was it been performed by Manfred Mann, but I think I think it was written by Burt Bacharach. Oh yeah, Bacharach and David. Yeah. That's it. The yeah. the classic. Um, it's 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 a really birds type album. You can hear those sort of influences coming in. Um, I mean, I, most of the albums I've written down stuff like folk, garage, psychedelic, question mark. Um, Gavin, um, when we asked you to listen to, you know, obviously everything before coming on the pod, was this one you were aware of um, beforehand? Yeah. Uh, the f- first four albums I, I knew um, fairly well, uh, particularly Forever Changes. But yeah, this album as well I'd, I'd had for quite a long time. Having said that, it's not one of my favourites. It's not bad. I find it. I don't like the kind of, I like the birds, but I don't like Love's version of the birds. And I find those kind of mid-tempo songs a little bit 
ploddy and a little bit samey. My favourite tunes on this album are the ones where there's more of a kind of a bit of a garage rock and more of a up-tempo sort of vibe. Like uh, we've already talked about My Little Red Book, which is just a cracking way to start the album and stuff like My Flash on You as well. And I kind of wish there was more stuff with that kind of energy. I find like the energy dips a bit on some of the slower tunes on this. And I don't know if the production's a little bit flat. Um, so yeah, it's like I say, it's not bad, but it's not, it's not a peak one for me for sure. Okay. Um, I'm going to go over to, I'm going to go over to you, Paul. Um, you wrote a book about, what was it? Leave the Capital about music in Manchester. And, and you touch upon things like Hermit's Hermits and, and 60s music and how that influenced sort of modern music. Um, do you see any parallels between what was going on, say, the West Coast of America in the 60s and, say, the UK sound? Or do you think they were totally disparate things? Well, I mean, once you, you've got to factor in that everybody was ripping off the Beatles, I suppose. So um, you can't really get away from that, can you? It's, the, um, I, don't, I think it's very difficult to... They're like a, this kind of... They, elephant in the room aren't they the Beatles I mean even the birds are like the American Beatles in a lot of ways although the Beatles ripped off the birds a little bit with the 12 string guitars but um, I I don't know really I think that it's kind of different isn't it I think the the big difference I find with American 60s music was fine with everything they had more money didn't they I think I don't think there was there's no such people in bands in America are never working class as far as I can see they're all fairly well off. I mean, even Arthur Lee, I mean, you know, there's something cosy about them, I think, which is probably unfair. Didn't Arthur, I mean, I, I may have totally just mixed up various musical histories, but Arthur Lee, parents split up, his mum was a teacher, they moved over to the West Coast, Emily, is that yeah, right? Yeah, that's right. His his mum was a school teacher and his, um, his biological dad was a, a jazz musician. They split up when... He was quite young, and then his his mother remarried. But um, I mean, I would I, w- I would describe probably his his economic conditions growing up as as, as pretty modest overall. Well, I, I knew someone as soon as I said that. I thought someone's got to pull me up here because it's not going to be true. <laughs> uh, that's but my I, job. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. Well, I mean, I, when I'm please don't interrupt me when I'm making sweeping assumptions about things that aren't true. You know, but um, anyway, I, I I've never really been into that kind of. West West Coast American sixties as much. I mean, I quite like the birds, but this was quite a revelation to me because I've never really listened to Love at all until this. I was, I was given this for homework, so it's been quite an interesting process. I, I mean, and, and I mean, I'm going to ask both of you, Paul and Nick. I mean, there are many covers of of Hey Joe out there. Um, this has this is a great cover version of Hey Joe, right? It, no. it predates the Hendrix one, doesn't it? Does it, it does. Yeah. No, no, they did they still they didn't write it, but it is yeah, that's right. It is before the the Hendrix version. And it's it's I think it's pretty interesting for how I mean it's 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 much more fast paced. It's I agree with what Gavin said before, but I actually I like this album a lot, but I uh, to me the best tracks are the ones that are a little more frenetic, a little bit more driving, and that's that's a great example of, of one of those. Um, Nick, um, I mean, wh- wh- where does this sit for you as sort of debuts? I mean, most people know Love for a- an album we'll get to later on. Um, when we did this on the Facebook group, I didn't know this album existed. I was expecting to go straight into Forever Changes, and that took like three days. <laughs> well, honestly, <laughs> the first time I, I listened through to the Love discography, I'll be honest, I didn't even really know Forever Changes that well. Um, and so it was all kind of new to me. 
but obviously I was aware of it by reputation. Um, and I was totally blown away when I put on the first album and it's, it sort of like crashes out with this, this garage number, uh, my little red book totally wasn't what I expected at all. Didn't see it coming. So I love it. But that said, uh, it does peak on the, on the first track. Um, so, so, you know, that's, that's the best of it. It's as good as it gets. And I did go on, uh, I did go and listen to the Manfred Mann version afterwards, which is probably a little unfair because it's awful. It's so weedy. It's so weird too. Like, because it's, they, they've changed the chords a little bit too on the, on, on the love version. And so once like, that's the version that's in my head, you know? Yeah. Well, that insistent pounding throughout it, which is, you know, that was all, that's what love brought to it. And it's right, just right. amazing. Um, right. But yeah, that's that's the best thing on the album. But I, I still enjoy it as a whole, you know, just because I wasn't really expecting them to sound like this. I kind of had them down as, yeah, psychedelic hippie stuff. I mean, let's be honest, they still are they still are psychedelic hippie stuff. It's just They are, but hippie. they're definitely on the interesting side of that. For I the most so. part. Yeah, I mean I think that's for me because I, I, I don't normally like I agree that they are they are psychedelic hippie stuff. And that's not usually like my what I would describe as my favorite sort of like aesthetic mode <laughs> necessarily, but there's enough um like kind of uh, curveballs in the way that they do it that it makes it interesting for me. And and I, I I'm kind of naturally inclined to that more primitive sound. You know, as they mm-hmm. go on, they start getting arrangements and they get intricate and they uh-huh. get lovely. Uh-huh. Uh, but you know, I can I, I that's my comfort zone. Them doing this kind of primitive stuff. And the mm-hmm. other thing I really liked on this album is it's like it's 40 minutes long and there's 16 tracks. <laughs> it's just amazing. Other bands take note. Well, when we did the Spoon podcast, I did I think I, every single album introduction. I was like, here we go, 38 minutes and X amount of tracks. Nothing was more than like two minutes, 46. And it has been pointed out on this part that I prefer the shorter songs rather than the long ones. So yeah. No, you're going to mention is- Can again here. Who? <laughs> <laughs> or, or you're saving that for when we get onto the B side of the capo. <sighs> Sorry, getting ahead there. <laughs> the best version of Hey Joe is by the Safaris. And the other thing, my bit of trivia for you, the, the Hey Joe is the first thing my brother Steve ever learned to play on the bass uh-huh. guitar. So. Well now. Um, Nick is sort of super dancing inside that he's just been, he's just been told that by by a member of his favorite band. I mean, he's he's trying to hold it together, but I, I can I can see this, and it's my job to embarrass him. Anyway, um, okay, so let's let's continue a little bit. Um, obviously, there are socio political things that need to well, at least be addressed. Um, it's the sixties. It's America. Um, he's a. I mean, he describes himself maybe later on as the first black hippie. Self-proclaimed first black hippie, or like he um, also described himself as like a he's like the first psychedelic black man, or that kind of thing. Yeah. Um. Did he do that so that people so that he go, hey, I'm I'm more important than than Jimi Hendrix, or that might be. I mean, the relationship with Jimi Hendrix is 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 kind of complicated because I mean I, they were they were kind of friends, but there's clearly like an element of of Arthur being jealous of of the success, especially a bit later on that. That Jimi Hendrix had, um, like he both sort of, he clearly like very much looks up to him, and he also is like a little bit jealous. So like he accused Hendrix of like ripping off his dressing style and um, things like that. That there's some complicated psychological dynamics there. I think. Okay, well, um, we we've looked at in the past about how, well, we've mentioned in the previous pods about you know uh, it seemed seemed that back in days of say the Beatles, you'd have an album every month. 
Um, and even when we we did the, the the Vault podcast, we commented about an album every year, which quite is quite rare now. Radiohead will turn up with one every ten years, and everybody will be like, "Oh my god, I've been waiting for so long." Um, sixty six was the eponymous, and then sixty six was also the Capo. That's right. Uh, second album. Yeah. Um, sound changed for me. It went a bit poppier, and I started. There's that word, what horrible word, but baroque pop. That seems to be on all the descriptions from about this album, um, and they had a, and they had their first top twenty in the UK, I think, with seven and seven is, which I think is 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 on this one. Um, more of the same. Are they going in a nicer direction, Nick? I'm going to go straight to you this time because you mentioned you prefer the garagey stuff of the last. I was wondering album. if if, if uh, what makes a record baroque is the introduction of a harpsichord. Oh yeah, damn else. right. Basically, yeah. my notes <laughs> on this on this record basically just said digger glossier harpsichordia. Harpsichordia sounds like a, a ferry. <laughs> <laughs> but the, the um, I mean, the highlight on this record for me is definitely Seven and Seven is, which is just, mm-hmm. I, I guess, you know, it's it's coming from the same sort of place as my little red book, though, isn't it? It's another big garage mm-hmm. number. Um, but the uh, the story about the, the the drumming on that is great, about when they were recording in the studio and nobody could keep up or, or they kept having to switch drummers. Um why, why? Why do they have to keep switch like switch drummers? Because one was like I think worn it was out, a, like a Snoopy, energy. their actual drummer, just wasn't up to it or something. Yeah, like Snoopy. It was. I mean, it's a very, it's fast. Like it's a very driving track. And Snoopy also like if you if you watch like the that documentary about love, love story, or you read the the John Ierson book about love, um, Snoopy just gets shit on like by everybody you have to feel bad for him because i think he didn't he didn't really enjoy his his time in the the band all that um, much um and, and listen just gonna j- jump in for a second because listeners who who i'll only listen to this part from my tortuous terrible analogies and gags wait a second emily so if did snoopy end up going to woodstock carry on move on move on oh, snoopy don't snoopy don't me. sorry, sorry <laughs> Oh. oh, I could smell that from here. Um, so, 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 how, so Snoopy was was what? I mean, there seems to be a thing later on where Arthur gets session musicians in to replace the people who are actually in the band. Um, was there sort of? You said he gets shat, he gets get shit on. Was there a sort of mistreatment of him? Was it just? Well, I think he just he kind of didn't he didn't fit in. Uh, like the other members of the band were sort of um, more in a more flashy way sort of more uh counter-cultural and he was perceived as kind of a square at the time and i think there are I mean, personality things too like he got along with arthur but he didn't really get along with a lot of the other members of the band and it, he also might not have actually been that good of a drummer <laughs> terrible drummer <laughs> terrible the, i i I mean, I, I will. I mean, when we've got a drummer on who's who's talking about drums, I will. Always, I mean, I have no idea about. I mean, he's not very well served by the mix. So, you know that awful when they first bring stereo in, and they have like the snare thirty-five feet over to the left, and the hi hats are sort of in the next neighbourhood. That's kind of it's that kind of thing. But he's not a good drummer. But he's. I think that he should be that. That phenomenon is called doing a lol Tollhurst, where they move you from drums to keyboards. That's what happened to him in the cure as well. It's yeah, kind of a way. It's presumably the keyboards are near the door, so it's a way of getting you out. I think. <laughs> Which is exactly what happened with this album because they they eventually they move him from the drums to to the harpsichord. <laughs> so, <laughs> hence the baroque. Um, Gavin. Um, yeah. The first album wasn't one of the the better ones for you. There's a slight. 
there's a slight change of sound. I mean, not massively, but there is a slight change of sound now. Yeah, but um, it's, it's definitely going in the right direction for me. This one, I like the more um, a rock, I'll use that word again, um, sound. It's got a better production. And I don't know, the songs are a bit more kind of, there's that kind of more dreamy sort of um, nature to them. And, you know, we've talked about Seven and Seven Ears, which is obviously kind of quite a stomper. But there's also stuff like Orange Skies, which is amazing. Uh, and Stephanie Knows Who. Uh, and she comes in colours. Are all really beautiful songs, and they're kind of pointing the way towards forever changes. I guess yeah, we've got a sort of songs. Nick, that she comes in colours. Yeah, possibly. Yeah, yeah. When I saw it on the track list, I was expecting a different song. Uh, well, she's a rainbow, isn't it? Yeah. yeah, yeah. I guess it was. I imagine it was at least an influence. Yeah. Um, obviously, we've we've not mentioned the um, the eighteen minute elephant in the room as yet, um, The Revelation, which, I mean, to this day, I can barely listen to. I did listen to it through again, like in preparation for this podcast. But, I mean, that's one that normally, once it gets to the end of She Comes in Colours, then I either put it back to the beginning or put something else on because it's it's almost unbearable, that, to me. Is it more unbearable than what we're going to come to later with the drum solo? Yeah. I think it's comparable. Well, equally, equally unbearable. It's not thirty or oh, twelve minutes of a drum solo, is it? That is that's the yeah. worst twelve minutes of my life. <laughs> I'm, 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 I'm counting surgery amongst that. <laughs> um, there is a beautiful thing when a band puts the worst, like a, such a terrible track as like an album closer. Uh, I mentioned my previous part about how the last Spoon album. I listened to it once, realized I hated the last song so much. I never. For me, the album became nine tracks, and I really like that album. And the last one just went, and I never listened to it again. I knew I'd never be, be turned around. Um, were they getting any more critical acclaim at this point? Were they still bubbling under? Was there anything going on with Emily? Well, they're, they're definitely still, I mean, like, they were kind of locally famous. I mean, they were they were, they were getting very well known, and, and they're very well received in, like, the in California, especially in the Southern California area. They, they weren't really, I don't think, making a lot of waves um, too far beyond that. They hadn't really, you know, toured anymore. Yeah, you know, particularly far at all, which I'm sure we'll talk about <laughs> more because it, you know, Arthur Lee had this sort of like pathological refusal to to tour for a very long time. Um, but they're still, you know, yeah, it's this weird thing where they're locally very famous, but they're not really known much far beyond. Okay. That. Well, I mean, hopefully things change a year later. With, I mean, if you're a listener who don't doesn't know much about love you might know or recognize at least the album sleeve we're about to talk about, um, if not the opening 30 seconds of, of the first track. Forever Changes in 1967, what recorded in three days, Lee gets in a bunch of session musicians, even at some points uh, playing parts to replace the band members who are still in the band. He's starting to get power struggles with, with Brian McLean, um, but there's an album and it is their most famous album, right? I mean, yeah, and the uh, and the session musician thing is really kind of it's a, a faint sort of. I mean, so the actual band members did end up playing on the final version of the album, but I think I think part of the thing that's going on is that um, like drugs are coming more into play, as and in particular, a couple of the band members were were kind of getting more deeply into heroin, and this is not making them the most reliable um, rehearsers, et cetera. So the producer brought in these session musicians to start to kind of basically say, hey, if, like, if you can't cut it, then 
you know, we don't need you. Um, and they sort of, they were kind of scared enough by that and upset enough by that, that they, they did kind of pull their, their stuff together and came back and recorded the album. Yeah. Okay. And so, I mean, this is the famous album. I mean, that, those, that opening, what, 30 seconds when it's sort of the guitar and it sort of kicks in mm-hmm. and you finally get the vocals. Even when I didn't think I knew who love was a few years ago and I, I went, Oh no, of course, of course I know this one. I just didn't know who it was. Um, Paul, are the drums better? I, I feel like yes. okay. The drums are better on this, yeah, and the, it's much better produced, isn't it? I mean, is this this is? Um, I can't think who produced the Doors as well. Is it Paul? Oh, I can't think of his name now. But they, they've got the they've got the Doors production team on this, and it's much better produced. This album, Paul Rothschild and Bruce Botnick were the two people who produced the door all the Doors stuff. It is a bit yes, Doorsy, isn't it? Yeah, it's very Doorsy. Yeah, this is one of those albums that sounds of its time. You know, you get albums that are timeless and then you get albums that you listen to. Like we did, we've record, re-recorded some other podcasts recently and we go, well, this sounds like New York in 1981. Uh, this sounds to me like the West Coast or the Doors, LA, drugs, late 60s. Uh, this this is what this sounds like. And it does, but not- I think it does have a timeless element as well. Maybe because of the amount of artists it's influenced or tried to type sound like elements on this record. Mm. To me, there are parts of it that, that could have been certainly early 90s indie. A lot of bands probably wanted to sound like this. I struggled with this because I find it impossible to go back and listen to it without the weight of the people who've been influenced by it, if that makes sense. If you don't yeah, know it first, it's very difficult to just strip all that away, isn't it? Mm-hmm. I find it anyway. Mm-hmm. No, yeah, I think so. I think that's it. I think baggage is something that's, that is there. And sometimes it is impossible to actually see something with a purely uh, objective, through a purely objective lens, uh, and to be able to go and listen to it without going, well, yeah, this sounds a little bit like 92 X, or this sounds a little bit like that. Most of my notes for most of these podcasts are, this one sounds like X. Um, this one sounds, oh, this sounds like the blue tones, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Gavin, is this your favorite? Come on. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'd say it's probably my favorite album of all time, period. It's just, for me, it's, it's almost hard for me to talk about because it it's like, I don't want to explore the magic too much. You know what I mean? And kind of put it under the microscope because I'm afraid it'll lose something. Don't look behind so if the curtain. So if we can just stop now, you know, that'd be really good. But now I just, to me, it's just an album I can listen to at any time and, uh, a friend of mine did a compilation tape for me. It would have been sort of in the late 80s and it had Alone Again or on, on the first track on this C90. And I played it and I was like, that's amazing. And, you know, obviously I'd not heard it then and just kept rewinding that tune and then um, bought the album. And, you know, I've just lived with it ever since really. And it's, yeah, it's like Nick said, it's got, it's got that timeless quality. And although, it, yeah, it does sound late 60s um california it's it's not kind of dated in that way do you know what i mean it's still kind of fresh and um yeah it's uh, yeah it's amazing for me it's it's sunny and dark and it's magical and it's strange and tempos change all over the place but it all nothing jars on it it's just seamless uh, yeah yeah it does sound I like a band's starting to hit their stride and it also sounds like a, an album that seemingly must have been huge at the time and broken them to worldwide acclaim. Emily? Uh, unfortunately, <laughs> no. Um, 
that, that would be nice. But no, it was actually, at least in the United States, it, it did worse than either um, of their previous two albums. So um, it, it wasn't, it wasn't the thing that catapulted them to, uh, to stardom, unfortunately. I mean, not for lack of, um, you know, a lot of, it's by far like the most ambitious thing that they've done so far. Right. And the whole thing with, you know, the strings and the, um, the horns, all the arrangements were sort of intended from the beginning. They weren't, you know, I've heard some stories that like, Oh, they were just, you know, overdubbed at the end or something. It's true that they were recorded afterwards, but they were intended as part of the compositions from the beginning. So I think there's this, to me, the album has this sort of, I don't know, this kind of like holistic quality, like it all kind of, it's a, it's a really good listening in a single set, a setting. Like there are lots of artists where I love like a track or two here or there, but I don't, I don't actually really care about listening to an entire album. Whereas this in, to me is kind of, it's more than the sum of its, its parts in a way, which maybe is, I don't know, maybe that's part of the reason that it wasn't at least in the U S particularly commercially successful because it, um, I mean, there are individual tracks that are are really great but it's it does really benefit from listening to it all together i think as opposed to just in isolation um who were their peers peers loosely i mean what else was out in 67 were the doors doing things at the time hendrix yet Um, woodstock hasn't quite happened right no woodstock hasn't happened yet um i mean monterey pop festival is around this time which they um turned down which is (laughs) one of many great <laughs> career decisions made um around that time um i think i i i'm afraid that i'm gonna make a mistake in terms of the doors chronology um because i don't know the exact dates but you know they were also on electra around this time and i think that um arthur lee may have even like brought them to electra like he went to you know folks at electra and said like hey there's this other band that's in la that's playing and they're also you should you, you should listen to them. And love was much bigger at the time. Like there are members of the doors that have said things, to the effect of like, Oh, we just, we just dreamed of being as big as love were because again, it's this, this like thing that I don't know if it can happen these days. And like the current American rock scene where they were locally incredibly famous, even though, it, you know, it was very much a, a localized thing. Okay. Okay. Um, do you think there was anything I mean, obviously, he had a reticence to maybe tour. He made some horrendous decisions as to where to play. Um, do you think there was anything about, well, the, his, his, the fact that he was uh, African-American mm-hmm. uh, at that time? I mean, had that scene sort of embraced diversity, if that's the right thing to say? I mean, I think, I think it's definitely possible that, that I think that's a factor. I mean, I, 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 you know, um, I think that in terms of, uh, you know, you know, their reticence to, to tour more nationally, um, you, you know, this is in the middle of like the civil rights movement in the United States. Um, you can, you can understand like concern about how that would go over in a lot of like, in, like the South or even, you know, other parts of the country. Um, I've heard some claims too, that like some of the band members may have wondered if Electra was um, maybe not promoting them as fully as they could have because um because they were a racially diverse band, uh, I don't. I don't actually know the facts as to whether that's you know a, a credible interpretation. Facts. Or not, we don't need facts. I, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I've often okay. yeah, at that time in history, if if it was just a thing that that uh, they just didn't people didn't know to market them as a band because mm-hmm. there was like these are there's white bands that we yeah, market yeah. like this and there's black bands that we market yeah, like yeah. this. What yeah. the hell do we do with these guys? Right, you right. know that might have been an issue. I don't know mm-hmm. if it was. 
And at that time, it does seem to me, looking back in hindsight, that the sort of West Coast psychedelia, it was a really white-dominated genre. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah I, it was also a bunch of middle-class American uh, Californians going, yeah, I, I want to be hippie now. I'm being very dismissive of an entire generation. But <laughs> hey. Um, so... If there's ever a, a generation you can be dismissive of, it's the West Coast American hippies of 1967, I think. Perfect. I feel like I've been validated. Well, let's stop the episode here then. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so if that is the album that, in, in retrospect, m- m- most people look back on and, and hold up as, as a pinnacle, uh, moving on, we're moving on into 1969. I was just sorry, be, sorry oh. just before you move on, I was going to say there is a bit of a parallel with The Doors because Alone Again All isn't Arthur Lee, is it? It's uh, Brian McLean. Mm. Right. And he, he sang it and they, then they brought up uh, Arthur Lee's vocals to make it a duet. But it's a bit like uh, Light My Fire is, is mm. not um, yeah. Jim Morrison, is it? Right. Well, I mean, and that's it. There, there was there were clashes from what I can gather on the making of this album. Um, uh, both um, him and McLean demanding to have more, basically, control yeah. over the band, which I think sort of comes to a head with the next album because in the next album you've only got Arthur left. Yeah, uh, from right. the original lineup. Yeah, um, I, I was counting. I think. I mean, and obviously, Paul, you can look down on this dismissively, but 23 members in Love's career. Um, 23? <laughs> 20, 23 members all in Love's career. And obviously at this time, it was just, it's just Arthur Lee and his granny and some bongos. Um, yeah. But it's still, it's still Love. Now, before we talk about the album, For Sale, um, NME, a few years ago, actually put it up in an article as number one in their 101 albums to hear before you die. This one. That's Not the last choice. one. This one. That is weird. Yeah, number five, wasn't it? Forever changes. Some, yeah, something like that. This was number one, and I, I mean, it's it's all right. That just seems like I, I mean, I, I I like I do like the the one we're about to talk about, but that just seems like pure contrarianism <laughs> to me. Which which a little bit of me admires. I like a music journalist <laughs> just say, say, nope, I'm going to put the I'm going to yeah. Re- you've got to remember one. about that list. Revolver's number thirteen, isn't it? Of albums right. you're going to. I mean, it's that's just that is definitely just willful uh, um, ridiculousness, isn't it? I think I think I can't remember which music magazine it was. Um, did a, a a sort of a list of greatest guitarists of all time, and it had Jay Maskis from Dinosaur Junior as number one. And I love Jay Maskis from Dinosaur Jr. I mean, I think he, he, I've loved everything he's ever done. But when they interviewed about him, he went, let's be honest, any guitar pole that doesn't have Hendrix as number one isn't really worth it, you know? And it's sort of, there is that contrarian thing of, if I do this, and now it's clickbait, but then obviously it, it sold copies or it sold copies of the enemy, um, which I'm not sure I miss anymore, really. Um, okay, it's... It's it's bluesy jazz at times. There's still some of the the baroque stuff. The garage element sort of gone a bit. The musicians don't seem as good. Is is that a fair thing to say? Apart from Snoopy, obviously. Oh, he's gone now, isn't he? Oh, Snoopy! <laughs> Snoopy's long gone. He's yeah, gone. Yeah. Yeah. Well gone. Uh, but yeah, they don't they don't seem as they don't seem as good, right? I mean, they don't seem to have the range. Uh, whereas in the last album, they could turn it up, they could turn it down, they could go in different directions. These seem a little bit two-dimensional. Gavin, you're yeah. sort of nodding. I'm hoping yeah, you're Yeah, no, I agree. I think this one really plods, you know, compared to the last album and, and the first six tracks of Da Capo, when you compare it to this, it's um, it just gets very kind of turgid in places. There's some good tunes on it. I mean, August is great, and 
you know, we've, we've not really sort of said that the, the opening tracks of, the, of these first four Love albums mm. all have a great start. You know, yeah. track number one is always a belter. Um, but again, a bit like the first album, you know, there's a lot of kind of mid-tempo plodding things. Um, and after everything that happened with Forever Changes, it feels like that was, you know, kind of a magical dancing kite of an album that was going here, there and everywhere. And then suddenly you just got this kind of this kind of lumpy thing that doesn't really kind of move and float in the same way. Um, and, yeah, it just feels like the tightness has gone out of it. And, and a lot of the inspiration seems to have been lost for me. Yeah. Um, I mean, we're going to cover this probably more in the next episode, but just to touch on this before we, we wrap up this one, um, For Sale was part of like a, a three-album recording. Is that right, Emily? Well, it, it ended up it ended up turning into like the, everything they recorded from those sessions got split into into two records basically, but it was it was three LPs worth of material. So like, I mean, like Arthur Lee clearly he had a lot in him, <laughs> you know, like because there were actually a, t- a bunch of songs, additional songs that had been kind of like composed around the time of Forever Changes that that weren't on Forever Changes. So like, I think he had a lot of surplus material. You might argue that it this album would have benefited from a little more tight honing. Cause I feel, I do agree that like overall, you know, it's not, it's not as focused um, as I think like the previous couple of records with the, with the exception of revelation, obviously. Um, I, I, I do like, I think there are some good standout tracks in here. I think also it's just really, um, it's really difficult to follow an album that has, you know, even if it wasn't super impactful at the time it was released, like an album like Forever Changes that over the intervening decades has, you know, become this kind of cult um, legend, like what could possibly follow that, you know? So I think that sometimes this album gets, um, even though I don't think it's as good as Forever Changes, I, I think it gets like a more negative view because simply because of the contrast with what came before. Okay. Okay. Good. So, what we've we've looked at the first four albums of Love, and it seems that they were starting to hit their stride. They they worked. They finally managed to create what has become a seminal album. Bit of a misstep afterwards, um, and as we just discussed, uh, recorded three albums worth of material, which were split over two albums. We've just looked at one of them, and we're going to look at the next one in our next episode when we will be looking at the latter half of love's career now some bands come back and have a great second half of their careers some bands well just see episode two of our can uh, uh series to to find out how some bands can cannot um we're going to wrap up here and we'll be back in a week um emily thank you very much thank you gavin thank you very much paul thank you very much thank you nick yes Despite Ewan's best efforts to embarrass me, I think I handled meeting Paul Hanley pretty well. He was perfect for the episode, down-to-earth, erudite, and with particularly strong opinions on drum solos. What more could you ask for? Thank you, Paul, for coming on the show, and thanks also to Gavin Hogg from the Giddy Carousel of Pop podcast, and Emily Baldoni for taking us on this intriguing guided tour. Now we'll be back for part two next week when we complete our journey through Love's discography. Thanks to you in any way. 
and to Jonathan Fisher for our theme tune. Links to his work and other music used for beds are included in the show notes. If you like the show, extend some love to the algorithm makers. Like and subscribe, but most of all, review, review, review. Seriously, it really, really helps. I'm Nick Hildridge. If I don't start crying, it's because I have no eyes. Who was the other guy? I got that one. I joined a band with Tom Ingley, who used to be in the Spinal Carpets, and we were talking about the fall, and he said, yeah, I saw the fall. They played the Hacienda. They had Carl Burns on drums and some other bloke. So that was me! <laughs> <laughs>